yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. This episode is The Attack on Pearl Harbor. Welcome to the Pacific War Podcast week by week. I am your dutiful host, Craig Watson. I realize there may be many of you who are new to this podcast who may have bypassed the rather elongated series of prelude episodes. To just do some house cleaning, so to say, this podcast series will follow the Pacific War week to week, from 1941 to 1945, similar to how our sister show found at Kings and Generals over on YouTube does it. Stating that, I will remind the audience that this series is not a audio version of those episodes. Here, you are getting a completely different narrative of the events, told by countless primary and secondary sources. We are going to give you all the dirty little details for those who witnessed the events. But before we start, I want to also remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about the Second World War? I would recommend their episodes on the Battle of Hong Kong or the Battle of Greece. Of course, they have a wider collection of episodes on many historical events, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and help us continue to produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And after all that, if you are still hungry for some history-related content, why don't you go over to my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over on YouTube, where I have a few episodes like Nagumo's Dilemma during the Battle of Midway, or perhaps a historic film review I did on the movie The 800. Go give it a look. It would mean a lot to me. And without further ado, 
Today's episode, as we said, is going to finally be the attack on Pearl Harbor. As we said in the last prelude episode, the Japanese Empire ultimately decided on war with the West. Emperor Hirohito was involved during the entire decision-making process. In fact, when the last meeting was held and Hideki Tojo stated, quote, Once His Majesty decides to commence hostilities, we will strive to meet our obligations to him. Bring the government and the military ever closer together. Resolve that the nation united will go on to victory. Make an all-out effort to achieve our war aims and set His Majesty's mind at ease. I now adjourn the meeting. And also present in the meeting was Sugiyama, who wrote in his meeting minutes. The emperor nodded in agreement to each explanation that was made and displayed not the slightest anxiety. He seemed to be in a good mood. We were all filled with awe. End of quote. The war was a go. How was this all going to go down, though? What exactly was the Southern Strike Policy and the attack on Pearl Harbor going to be like? The plan was a simultaneous execution of the invasion of the Dutch East Indies, the Philippines, Malaya, and a preemptive surprise attack on Pearl Harbor to destroy the American Pacific Fleet. In virtually everything he had done since becoming emperor, Hirohito had departed from the precedent set upon by his grandfather, Emperor Meiji. From December the 2nd to December the 8th, or better known as X-Day, while the Japanese people remained unaware of the upcoming war, Hirohito met repeatedly with his chiefs of staff, questioning them and going over the war plans and receiving dozens of reports over the status of all the units moving into position on various invasion fronts. There were two simultaneous surprise attacks, an air assault on the American Pacific Fleet and naval facilities at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, and a ground landing at Kotobaru in British-held Malaya. From Kotobaru, the Japanese troops would strike southward down the Malayan west coast until they seized Singapore at the very tip of the Malayan Peninsula, the linchpin of the British Empire, as it was known, and also the gateway to launch a further invasion of the Dutch East Indies. To do this, the Japanese would have to violate Thailand's neutrality at Singora, a strategic point north of Kotobaru on the Gulf of Siam. In fact, the entire southern operation was based on the premised violation of international law with respect to the United States, Great Britain, and Thailand. On September the 24th, Tokyo ordered a spy named Takeo Yoshikawa, who happened to be in Hawaii, to divide the geography of Pearl Harbor into five sections and report on which warships were anchored in each. His directives were, quote, Henceforth, we would like to have you make reports concerning vessels along the following lines in so far as possible. Number two, with regard to warships and aircraft carriers, we would like 
to have you report on those at anchor tied up to wharves, buoys, and docks. If possible, we would like to have you make mention of the fact when two or more vessels are alongside the same wharf also. End of quote. You might be asking, why so much interest in vessels docked next to each other? Well, that's because a torpedo could only strike the outer ship's hull, so horizontal bombers and dive bombers would be needed to destroy the inner targets. The details provided by Yoshikawa were extremely useful for pinpointing the bomb plots. Another major part of the plan was how to get the Japanese fleet to Pearl Harbor without being noticed. Surprise was of the essence. Captain Minoru Genda investigated the multiple variables. Going straight from Japan to Oahu on a middle route would almost guarantee a run-in with American warships. Genda's solution was a route across the 45-degree latitude, a thousand miles north of Oahu. Yoshikawa's reports stated the American patrols were meager north of Pearl Harbor, so it seemed a sound plan. But this plan came at a cost. Japan had no bases on the 45-degree northern route for the ships to refuel. What were they to do? Well, by 1941, ships were capable of refueling at sea, though it was not common practice. On top of this, the Japanese would need to master the refueling technique through a forecast of very rough winds and waves. So Genda assembled the Navy's best tank captains and outlined the problem to them, and ordered them to solve it. Hell, they even had to think of the issue of supplying cold weather gear just for the voyage. Did I mention this entire voyage would need to be done absolutely under secrecy? This entire voyage, by the way, is called Operation Z, and on top of having to successfully surprise Pearl Harbor, it also needed to be finished and done with before Japanese forces heading to invade the whole of Southeast Asia were detected. Admiral Isoruku Yamamoto said of this plan to make it clear, quote, I realize that some do not think well of my plan, but the operation against Hawaii is a vital part of Japan's grand strategy. So long as I am commander-in-chief of the combined fleet, Pearl Harbor will be attacked. I ask you to give your fullest support, return to your stations, and work hard for the success of Japan's war plan. Good luck. End of quote, and good luck indeed. Yet for everything that it was, Admiral Yamamoto's plan did have some flaws, one being that Pearl Harbor happened to be a naval base. That meant that rescue services could be quickly mobilized, and many sailors would be on shore leave, thus reducing possible American casualties. Another problem was that the American ships were moored in shallow waters, so most of the destroyed warships could be salvaged and repaired with comparative ease. Of course, the largest problem was the U.S. carriers in the Pacific would happen to be absent from Pearl Harbor on the day of the attack. 
the U.S. carriers were one of the most important objectives of the operation, and spies like Yoshikawa reported their absence prior to the attack. Yoshikawa gave detailed reports of what warships were anchored on which given dates, and the operation was enacted despite knowledge of the carriers being absent. Meanwhile in Hawaii, Major General Walter Short and Admiral Husband Kimmel were concerned with a possible attack on Pearl Harbor. They also believed they could be subjected to a sabotage operation and thus all Army aircraft were bunched together for more protection at Wheeler Field, which, ironically, would make it easier for aerial attacks to be made upon them. Munitions were secured, coastal artillery was put on high alert, carriers started to rotate in and out of harbor, and warships started to patrol in search of any submarines threatening the shipping. All of these defensive measures were under the expectations of a naval invasion, but not a massive air attack. The fleet sailed off on its perilous journey, as noted by Mitsuo Fuchida, who would lead the first wave of aircraft. He said, quote, At six o'clock, on the dark and cloudy morning of November the 26th, our 28-ship task force weighed anchor and sailed out into the waters of the North Pacific Ocean. The crew shouted, Banzai, as they took what might be their last look at Japan. I thought the plan should have called for the complete destruction of the U.S. Pacific Fleet at the outset, followed by an invasion of the Hawaiian Islands to push America entirely out of the Central Pacific. In the meantime, the fleet had assumed formation. The carriers sailed in a parallel column of three, followed by the tankers. On the outside, two battleships and two heavy cruisers took positions, the whole group encircled by a screen of light cruisers and destroyers. The submarines patrolled about 200 miles ahead of our force. End of quote. This Goliath task force consisted of six aircraft carriers, the Akagi, Kaga, Soryu, Hyoyu, Shokaku, and Zuikaku. They carried with them over 408 aircraft. They had all departed from Hitokapu Bay on Kasatka Island in the Kuril Islands, en route for the northwest part of Hawaii. Now while en route, many looked over the battle plans anxiously. Hell, Genda and Fuchida created two strategies based on if they caught the Americans by surprise as the mission required, or if they found them ready and waiting. In the former case, Fuchida leading the first wave would fire a flare gun once, bringing the torpedo planes to the fore to do as much damage as possible, followed by the dive bombers and the high-level bombers. But if the Americans appeared to be ready, Fuchida would fire two flares off, bringing in the dive and horizontal bombers in first. Genda, who solved the shallow water torpedo issue, was so nervous about the possible failure of his torpedo wooden fin idea, he suggested a novel strategy to Furukawa, the leader of the horizontal bombers. It went as follows, quote, if your bomb hits directly beside the turret and it explodes in the powder magazine, the ship will be reduced to fragments. 
Upon hearing this, Furukawa expressed his doubts at achieving such an accurate hit, stating it was hard enough just to hit the ships, much less the turrets, to which Genda said, Do it with spiritual strength. Furukawa then pleaded, Genda, don't ask such unreasonable things. End of quote. Emotions were running high, as you can imagine, for the entire crew, as they sailed for what was most likely to be the most important mission of their lives. Now this is occurring before the negotiations are completely broken off, as you might remember from the last episode. Tojo had sent America its Proposal B, with a deadline set for November the 29th, and after that deadline, what would occur was, quote, After that, things are automatically going to happen. End of quote. When President Roosevelt received this information, he was quoted to have said, that we were likely to be attacked perhaps as soon as next Monday, for the Japanese are notorious for making an attack without warning. The question was how we should maneuver them into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much damage to ourselves. It was a difficult proposition. End of quote. On November the 25th, Cordell Hull showed America's counteroffer to Tojo's Proposal B, which would be rejected. On that same morning in Hawaii, husband Kimmel met with a group of Army and Naval officers to decide whether to send planes and crews to help defend Wake and Midway, or to keep them in Hawaii to defend Oahu. General Short stated, If I man these islands, I must command them. Kimmel stated back, Over my dead body, the army should exercise no command over naval bases. The Hawaiian Air Force Chief, James Mollison, stated, Our mission is to protect Oahu, and shipping out these army planes will lessen our capability to do so. Kimmel responded, Why are you so worried about this? Do you think we are in danger of an attack? Mollison replied, The Japanese have such a capability. Kimmel replied, Capability, yes, but possibility? End of quote. Well, on December the 1st, Kimmel received information from his intelligence officer, Edwin Layton, on Japan's actions, stating, the fact that service calls lasted only one month indicates an additional progressive step in preparing for operations on a large scale. Kimmel asked for a follow-up on this information and was told the IGN Carrier Division 1 and 2 were missing from the report. In fact, there was insufficient information to make any reliable call as to where the carriers were. Kimmel was quite alarmed and shouted, What? You don't know where Carrier Division 1 and Carrier Division 2 are? Leighton replied, No, sir, I do not. 
I think they are in home waters, but I do not know where they are. The rest of these units, I feel pretty confident of their location. Kimmel replied, Do you mean to say they could be rounding Diamond Head and you wouldn't know? Leighton replied, I was hoping they would be sighted before now. When carriers or other types of war vessels go into home waters, home ports, home exercise areas, they use a low-power radio direct with shore stations. This is then handled normally on telegraphic landlines to prevent our direction finder stations and intercept stations from hearing their traffic. End of quote. Problem was, Operation Z was done strictly under radio silence. In fact, Joseph Rochefort, the commander of the Navy's combat intelligence services, had determined that the Japanese carrier force had remained in Kyushu for training, because in a great act of radio deception, the first air fleet's wireless operators had stayed behind and continued to broadcast in what was a well-known hand to American listeners. The Americans had all been fooled. The following day, on December the 2nd, the Emperor approved the launch of X-Day. Admiral Yugaki received a telegram from the General Staff with the authority to open Imperial Naval Order Number 12. This order commanded the first air fleet, which at that moment was about to cross the international dateline along the 180th meridian to attack Oahu at any time after midnight of December the 6th. Ugaki cabled Choichi Nagumo with the coded message Nitake Yama Noboa Ichi Ni Re Ya Climb Mount Nitaka Nitaka being the peak on the island of Formosa, the highest point of the Japanese Empire. This was the strike order. Nagumo's task force finally could be told their mission's targets at last. There was an outburst amongst the crew. One, Iki Kuromoti, said of the event, quote, At last, Japan would be at war with Britain and the United States of America. An air attack on Hawaii. A dream come true. What will the people at home think when they hear the news? Won't they be excited? I can see them clapping their hands and shouting with joy. These were our feelings. We would teach the arrogant Anglo-Saxon scoundrels a lesson. End of quote. Now we mentioned there was strict radio silence for the first air fleet. Perhaps now I can call them by their more well-known name, the Kido Butai, led at this point by Chuichi Nagumo. Quite an interesting character. The Kido Butai's size was immense, and with their radios disabled, the only ways the ships could communicate was through blinker lights and signal flags, the old school way. Well, on December the 5th, the Kido Butai would run into a foreign vessel the only time en route to Hawaii that it would happen. The vessel was a Soviet trawler called Yoritsky, which was sailing between Portland and Vladivostok. When the Kido Butai and the Yuritsky spotted another, Nagumo did not order an attack to sink it. On the other hand, there is no information 
on if the Yaritsky reported the sighting or not. There is a theory on the situation about why nothing was reported, that being that Stalin knew a great deal about the Japanese government through his sorge spy ring, and wanted to keep the peace on his eastern borders while dealing with Germany. Now I'd like to mention an interesting aspect of Operation Z. The IJ officers were going to invade British territory without giving prior notice to Britain, but the IJN felt quite differently about the United States. For Operation Z, Emperor Hirohito ordered Hideki Tojo repeatedly to not attack the United States without warning. Naval attaché Yuzuru Sahimatsu explained the sense of honor that was a hallmark of Japanese military history, stating, quote, Japanese warriors never tried to assassinate a person who is sleeping. When they tried to kill him, they first kicked the pillow and woke him up, and then they killed him. The same principle applied to the attack. The required time to wake America up would approximately be 30 minutes. End of quote. Now, the story of Japan's alleged failed warning is sort of a hotly debated issue. Some Japanese historians say it was Ambassador Nomura and Kuryuzu's inept mishandling of a simple cable message. What we know today is that Tokyo set an extremely tight schedule between the cable's dispatch and the hour for the presentation, with absolute zero provision for human error. Very Japanese. Thus, when Admiral Togo sent the notice to the ambassadors, a 5,000-word, 14-part message in two blocks to the Japanese embassy in Washington, the transcribing of that said message took too long for the Japanese ambassadors to deliver on schedule. Whether intentional or not, Tokyo dispatched the message in a jumble. Admiral Yamamoto specified the formal declaration of war to be made 30 minutes before the attack on Pearl Harbor would commence. Well, the ambassadors would give the declaration of war almost one hour after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Oops. On top of this, U.S. codebreakers had already deciphered and translated most of the message hours before it was even delivered but the senior U.S. government and military officials took it as a very strong indicator negotiations were benign and terminated, and that war might break out at that very moment. Oops, again. Before the air attack would commence, the IGN's fleet submarines, outfitted each with a Type A midget submarine, would come within 12 miles of the mouth of Pearl Harbor, and on December the 7th, they would release these midget submarines at around 1 a.m. local time. The crews of these midget submarines donned Hachimaki headbands as they launched knowing they were all probably going to die. At 3.42 a.m. Hawaiian time, the minesweeper Condor spotted a midget submarine, periscope southwest of Pearl Harbor's entrance, and alerted the nearby destroyer named Ward. Ward would find and sink a different midget submarine at 6.37 a.m. in what was the first American shots of the Pacific War. 
Another midget submarine on the north side of Ford Island shot torpedoes and missed the seaplane tender Curtis and destroyer Mahanigan. Mahanigan saw her at this point and would sink her at 8.43 a.m. Another midget submarine, the Ha-19, grounded twice just outside the entrance to the harbor on the east side of Oahu and was captured later on December the 8th. One of its crew, Kazuo Sakamaki, actually swam to shore and was captured by the National Guard. He ended up being the first official Japanese prisoner of the war. And another midget submarine was hit by a death charge and had to be abandoned. The Japanese would lose five midget submarines, but this did not tip off the Americans to the horror that was to come. The pilots of Operation Z assumed they would never see Japan again. Before readying their planes, they prepared small envelopes with farewell letters, nail clippings, and hair strands so their families would have something of their departed heroes to cremate. Many had thousand-stitch belts, which were good luck charms created by their wives, mothers, or sisters. Each stitch was a piece of a prayer for luck. Each man was given a bento box lunch for his mission, a rice ball, pickled plums, biscuits, chocolates, and amphetamines, much like the German Wehrmacht when they were blitzkrieging into France. These air pilots would also be using quite similar drugs. At an hour before dawn, as the task force approached its launch point, Admiral Choichi Nagumo told Genda, quote, I have brought the task force successfully to the point of attack. From now on, the burden is on your shoulders and the rest of the flying group. Genda replied, Admiral, I am sure the airmen will be successful. End of quote. The aircraft were prepared to launch. They would be launching in two waves of Mitsubishi A6M Ryzen Zero fighters, a legendary aircraft for its quickness and nibble handling. It would be the fighter escort. They could have a top speed of about 310 miles per hour, with 20mm cannons in the wings and 7.7mm machine guns superior in just about every way to what Americans would be flying in the Pacific for the opening years of the war. Their dive bomber was the Aichi D-3A, codenamed VAL, with a top speed of about 240 miles per hour, assigned to hit airfields in the first wave and naval targets for the second wave. The Nakajima B-5N, codenamed Kate, would be the high-altitude horizontal bombers, and some of them would be low-skimming torpedo planes as well. These could drop 800-kilogram torpedoes, or two 550-pound, or six 293-pound bombs. The first wave would be over 183 aircraft, launched north of Oahu, led by Commander Fuzio Fuchida. 49 Kates with bombs, 40 Kates with torpedoes, 51 VALs and 43 Zeros would be hitting them soon. At around 6 a.m. on December the 7th, 230 miles north of Oahu, in 15 minutes, 183 aircraft of Genda's first wave launched. 
with around six failing to do so, mind you, but still incredible numbers to say the least. At 7.05 a.m., the second wave of 167 aircraft, commanded by Lieutenant Commander Shigikazu Shimazaki, launched. This wave consisted of 54 Kates, 81 Vals, and 36 Zeros. The Sunday morning was especially dreary as the United States Army's Opana radar station by Kahuku Point, Oahu's northern tip. One out of six small units deployed at strategic locations across the coastline had just begun operations around two weeks before. They were capable of tracking planes within a 150-mile radius. The Opana radar station was the only one staffed and operated on December the 7th at 7 a.m. The station was quite remote, and her crew were divided into three-man teams, but that morning, the third man assigned wanted to sleep in, and it was decided the other two could easily handle Sunday's workload. Private Joseph Lockhart operating the radar scope and George Elliott doing the plotting and driving, while at 6.45 a.m., 130 miles off, there were tiny little flashes emerging. At 6.54 a.m., a superior phoned in and said that they were relieved of duty, they could put the scope down, but the truck to carry them back to camp for breakfast had not yet arrived, so the two decided to keep working until it did. At 7.02 a.m., a huge blip appeared, something bigger than either man had ever seen before. They moved at a speed of an aircraft. It cannot be a ship. It was moving way too fast. Elliot plotted the table to set the position of the giant blip, and at 7.06 a.m. phoned to report his findings to Fort Shafter. The line was dead, since at precisely 7 a.m., everyone at the information center had quit work for breakfast. So, Elliot followed protocol. His phone was connected to the information center's switchboard operator, a man by the name Private Joseph McDonald, and Elliot told him, quote, There's a large number of planes coming in from the north, three degrees east. End of quote. Well, McDonald wrote down that message and gave the message to Lieutenant Kermit Tyler, a pilot with one day of experience at the information center, who had been ordered to remain there until around 8 a.m. Tyler had also only learnt of the existence of radar recently, and assumed Elliot's discovery was nothing. Then Elliot demanded to talk to Tyler directly and told him what he was seeing. Tyler presumed the blip was a formation of B-17s scheduled to come in from California. For security reasons, Tyler could not tell the radar operators about the scheduled B-17s. Tyler also knew nothing of the midget submarine situation, because the Navy had not informed the Army about it. Thus, no real action was taken. It was like a domino effect of bad luck. The clouds parted, and the shores of Oahu appeared to the first wave. Fuchida immediately called out Tenkai. His co-pilot, Lieutenant Mutsio Matsuzaki, raised his flare gun 
and at 7.40 a.m., fired once. At 7.49 a.m., zero hour. Fuchida and his radio man ordered all pilots, two, two, two. His horizontal bombers held formation at 9,800 feet. The torpedo bombers fell to 50 feet, skimming just above the water. His dive bombers took up 13,000 feet, and his fighters cruised between 65,000 to 12,000 feet. The Mon family, who was spending their weekend at their Halawa beach house, were all woken up by frantic barking of their two pug dogs, hearing the rumble of aircraft. James Mon and his son Junior were astonished to go outside and see over a hundred planes circling above their heads. Junior said to his father, They've changed the color of our planes. I'm going to let the audience know. The rest of the story at this point is going to be told mostly through the eyes of those who witnessed it. It's going to be almost all quotations. Thus, I am not going to obnoxiously say, quote, a hundred times. Fuchida could see the enormous and majestic U.S. Pacific fleet at last. At 7.53 a.m., Fuchida's radio man tapped, Tora, Tora, Tora. Two being the first syllable of Totsugeki, to charge or attack. Ra, the first of Rageki, meaning torpedo, and Tora, meaning together tiger, the animal of Fuchida's birth year, a bright omen. The message was sent to the whole of the Japanese Navy, informing the Empire Operation Z had achieved complete surprise. Nagumo was dumbstruck. Katsaka wept in tears of joy. They could all barely believe Yamamoto and Genda's outrageous plan had worked. Fuchida's armada was north of Kahaku Point when Zero's escorting dive bombers cut away to go to Wheeler Field in the dead center of Wau. Other Zeros flew for Hickam to attack the naval air station at Kanohi, with others heading towards the U.S. Marines at Ewa Mooring Mast Field. At Kamehameha High School, students saw a V formation of planes approaching the Army Air Corps field at Hickam. The planes began diving in single file, and Lieutenant Ainsley Mahikoa pulled up in his car and explained to the students, The planes are probably from the carrier fleet, which is absent from Pearl Harbor. Holes are dug into the ground, and dynamite set off to simulate bomb bursts, and they are using smoke pots on the Hickam Field area instead of burning airplanes to make the action look more realistic. A student named Fred Kamaka pointed out at the scene, saying, Look, we're shooting down our own planes. Oahu's 31 anti-aircraft batteries were all in position, none with their ammunition at hand. It all needed to be trucked over from locked-up depots. Of the island's 780 anti-aircraft cannons, only a quarter were staffed. The first air fleet's crews were ordered to attack any and all targets of opportunity. One Bob Tice and his wife were flying a taxi yellow Piper Cub back to John Rogers Airport 
and landed at the KT Flying Services hangar. Bob pointed into the distance and saw smoke, and he said to his wife, I think Hickam Field is having some kind of attack. The couple then saw an airplane approaching them. The plane fired on Cornelia Fort. Edna remarked, They're flying too low over a civilian airport. Right as she said this, a bullet entered through Bob's head, killing him instantly. Edna would later recall that the hole it left could put a golf ball through. The same Japanese crew that killed Bob Tice then proceeded to strafe the Hawaiian Airlines DC-3 passenger plane waiting to depart for Maui. The California National Guard's F battery was stationed at Camp Malalaki and Japanese aircraft were soon approaching. Corporal Warren Hutchins remembered Captain Lemon running to the end of the mess hall with his pants half unbuttoned and holding a pistol above his head, he yelled, Come on, get with it, a war is on. The Japanese were strafing the buildings, ripping the roofs right off as they proceeded to their designated target, Hickam. Hickam was home to six B-17s, 12 A-20s, and 33 B-18s. A Japanese dive bomber sliced a bomb through a barracks window at Hickam, filling the air with shrapnel and the screams of the wounded. Men rushed to grab rifles as they were cut down by strafing fire. A hundred or so of Hickam's civilian employees were arriving to work just then as Japanese bullets were hailing the base. An oil tank exploded, followed by the mess hall of Hickam's barracks. Thirty-five men were instantly killed. People ran in zigzag terror as Zero strafed them. Some B-17s were incoming to land at Hickam Airfield, which was already being attacked. Some of these B-17 pilots assumed they were friendlies, until the voice over the intercom screamed, Damn it, those are Japs! Zeros began to approach the B-17s as American soldiers on the ground manned anti-aircraft guns, who immediately began to shoot all around the aircraft above them even the B-17s, sending everybody into a panic. The B-17s tried to land, being helped by airfield crew, under the firestorm, many ridden with bullets and on fire. Pilots were injured as emergency crews and bikers of the Honolulu Motor Club rushed to try and help them get out of the carnage. Everywhere, men were rushed to Hickam Hospital as the strafing went on. Another squadron of six B-17s were approaching Hickam when they heard over the radio, The Japs have hit Pearl Harbor. Just then, Zeros appeared over the squadron, shooting at them, as anti-aircraft guns below also began to open fire upon them. The B-17 pilots knew the situation was desperate, so they turned away and headed for Halawa Auxiliary Field. One Lieutenant Frank Bostrom's B-17 was attacked so much by Zeros, he was forced to crash land at Kahuku Golf Course, and luckily, he survived. Back at Hickam Airfield, people were rushing into buildings for cover, which were designated targets of Fuchida's first wave bombers. Hangar 7 was hit by a bomb, killing dozens. 
When grounded planes took a hit, they usually exploded, and the flames leapt to anything nearby, like octane gas tanks, which filled the tarmac with lava-like streams of flame. The 5th Bomb Group ground crew, Harold Fishencord, said he could never forget the horrible screams of a man trapped in the nose of a B-18 that had caught on fire. He watched him burn to death. The Honolulu Fire Department Kalehi Station was called to help Hickam Airfield, though there was no mention of it being under attack. They arrived to find one of the base's fire trucks having been bombed and another truck's driver having been strafed. He was hanging over the steering wheel, dead. Wheeler Field in the center of Oahu was home to the Air Force's 14th Pursuit Wing. Over 99 P-40s, 39 P-36s, and an assortment of older aircraft were there. When the Japanese approached, Wheeler's armory doors were all locked and had to be broken open. The ammunition was locked in the hangar, and that hangar was now on fire as the Japanese began their onslaught. It would take Wheeler's planes over four hours to be ready to fight. Base commander, Colonel Flood, was in front of his quarters when he saw a bomb hit the base's engineering shops at hangar number one. The explosion was so powerful, those nearby thought the building had lifted straight into the air. Larger detonations followed as flammable storage dumps filled with drums of lacquer, turpentine, and aviation-grade fuel thundered. The ammunition depots, where all the aircraft's machine gun belts were stored, began to crackle like it was the 4th of July. The mess hall was hit by a bomb and the explosion threw people everywhere in the building. Many Chinese cooks ran to the freezer room for protection and another bomb struck the kitchen area, killing them all. Men swarmed out of the barracks as Zeros strafed them. One Zero's strafing run was so low that the plane's landing wheels got wrapped by a telephone wire, and Wheeler's commander, while running, saw the pilot smile at him, showing gold teeth. Wheeler's anti-aircraft defense was a couple of guys from a base fire department who spent six hours learning how to operate the .50 caliber anti-aircraft machine gun mounted on top of a firehouse. The dive bombers depleted their loads and began to join the Zeros on strafing. Nineteen dived from the west and then from the east as they strafed the hangars and the barracks. The air was filled with smoke from the burning oil. Every building at the base seemed to be either on fire or in ruins. At Wheeler, 39 people were killed, with another 50 wounded. Adjacent to Wheeler was the Army's massive Schofield Barracks. Takeo Yoshikawa and his fellow spies did not find any significant aircraft or materials there, so it was not a designated target. But this did not stop Japanese dive bombers and fighters from taking the opportunity to strafe Schofield's officers' quarters and her hospital. Men scrambled to shove planes away from burning aircraft and buildings as the Japanese strafed them. One hangar held .30 caliber ammunition and became so hot the cartridges exploded, sending tracers around all the men and planes. At Kanoe Bay Naval Air Station, which housed 36 PBY Catalinas, the Navy's signature reconnaissance seaplane 
while the air station was new and some of the buildings were still incomplete. Station roads had not even been paved yet, and the alarm system was not operational. As some Zero fighters approached, men shot awkwardly at the sky with their .45 caliber automatics. Kanoe held 303 sailors and 95 marines, who were all running from strafing fire and trying to fire back themselves. Men smashed the locks on the armories and grabbed Thompson submachine guns, ran across the runways as they were being strafed, and tried to fire upwards. One seaman, named Squash Marshall, outrun a Zero's gunfire for over a hundred yards as his friends cheered him on. He survived. Anti-aircraft shells were being shot into the air in quite a panic, many men forgetting to aim before firing and many of those shells falling right back down onto the Americans who were running for their lives. Six Zeros led by Lieutenant Tadashi Kanoe hit the control tower while five Zeros led by Lieutenant Masio Sato destroyed planes housed on the ramp. Lieutenant Fusada Iida was piling bullets into a naval air station armory when he saw from a side door an American shooting back at him with a Browning automatic rifle. The man named Sands was yelling out, Hand me another bar! I swear I hit that yellow bastard! The man was using the building as a shield while peppering the Japanese with bullets. Aida was enraged and headed straight for him, determined to kill him. Sands shot Aida Zero and hit its gas tank. Aida quickly smelt the gas and saw that his gauges were dropping. He knew he was about to go down. He had lectured his fellow airmen that any plane that failed should be used as a bomb. Aida was going to suicide crash directly into Sands and the armory. Pilot Eizu Fujita stated, Lieutenant Aida communicated with hand signs. He pointed to his mouth, which meant fuel, and then he pointed down and waved goodbye. He did a half roll and went down. Aida missed the building and smashed into the road, killing himself. Later on in life, Fujita would fly for Japan Airlines and would sometimes pilot aircraft to Honolulu each time he came to Oahu, he said it gave him uneasy memories. Directly southeast of Kanoe was the Air Corps Bellows Field, home to the 86th Observation Squadron and the 44th Pursuit Squadron. At 8.30 a.m., Lieutenant Tadashi Kanako had used up all of his Zero's cannon fire, so he strafed Bellows' sleeping tents with his machine guns. No air sirens had gone off, but a B-17 crash-landed on the nearby runway, followed up by nine Japanese aircraft strafing it, and then the base. The air raid then finally sounded off as men scrambled from their tents looking for shelter. A group of men ran out of the nearby army church making a run for the armament building to grab Browning automatics. Men jumped into cockpits trying to fire rear guns at zeros strafing back at them. Some men even tried desperately trying to launch their P-40s but were cut to pieces by Zeros, though some did manage to take off and fight back. Zero pilot Lieutenant Izio Fujita 
remembered. I was in a very excited state of mind when I saw the fighter headed straight onto me. I thought I would crash right into him, but at that last minute, the enemy pulled up to avoid the collision. And then it happened. He had exposed the belly of his plane right in front of me. And I started shooting. And he went down. First Lieutenant Samuel Bishop was the man in the P-40. He was shot in the leg. His plane crashed into the ocean, but he managed to swim to shore. At the U.S. Marines mooring mast field at Iwa, Akagi's Lieutenant Commander Shiguru Itaya and Kagi's Lieutenant Yoshio Shiga led 18 zeros against the base, striking it at 7.55 a.m. They shot with a mix of incendiary, explosive, and armor-piercing rounds, demolishing aircraft and killing frantically running men. Earl Hines drove a fire truck to the operations building next to Iwa's runway, where 48 planes were parked. He gasped when he saw nearly all of them were on fire, and zeros overhead made strafing runs continuously. One zero came right at his truck, so he jumped out and hid underneath it. Lieutenant Akira Sakimoto's dive bombers had just finished hitting Wheeler Field and joined in the attack at Iwa. The base's ambulance took 52 bullets from his squadron as medical staff tried to help the dying and the injured. After eight strafing runs, nine of Iwa's 11 F-4F Wildcats and 18 of her 32 Dauntless bombers were completely destroyed. Speaking of Dauntlesses, by the way, over in the Pacific, 215 miles west of Oahu, the USS Enterprise had launched Squadron 6, consisting of Dauntlesses, led by Lieutenant Commander Halstead Hopping, and they were en route to the Naval Air Station on Ford Island. Around 25 miles before reaching the shores of Oahu, the American pilots noticed a bunch of planes milling around. They assumed they were American Army Air Corps, though they were in fact the first wave of dive bombers on their way back to Nagumo's ships. Halfway between Iwa and Ford Island, one Brigham Young was shot at by anti-aircraft fire, and then from the rear, he was shot by something he described as a low-wing monoplane fighter with retractable landing gear. Young dove for his life, being shot at continuously by anti-aircraft defenses as he tried to radio Ford Island's control tower to say he was a friendly, but in all the chaos, he couldn't reach them. He then radioed his fellow Dauntless, telling them that Oahu was under attack, as he sat down on Ford Island, alive and well, but engulfed in anti-aircraft rounds. Some of the other Dauntlesses were not so lucky, having to bail out in the ocean because of the anti-aircraft defenses shooting at them. Iwa's commander, Claude Larkin, says he saw a mid-air collision of John Vaught's Dauntless with a Japanese bomber. Vaught and his gunner, Sidney Pierce, were able to bail out, but at too low an altitude. Falling, they crashed in some trees, and both died. When some of the Dauntless pilots figured out Ford Island was suicidal to approach, they instead went to Iwa, only to be told by the Marines there that since the Japanese had destroyed nearly all of Iwa's airfield, the Dauntlesses should get out while they still could. After an hour and 45 minutes, 
General Short's Hawaiian department had 163 men dead, 336 wounded, and 43 missing. Of 231 aircraft, 64 were destroyed, 93 were completely damaged, and perhaps 74 in all were fixable. Of Halsey's aircraft that left the USS Enterprise, 6 out of 18 planes were lost and 8 men had been killed. The airfields were a place of horror and carnage, and the harbor that held the U.S. Pacific Fleet was going to get its own taste of the horror. On December the 7th, 1941, nestled in the harbor were 96 ships. They were cruisers, seaplane and aircraft tenders, mine layers, and the mighty tenants of Battleship Row, the Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, Tennessee, West Virginia, Maryland, Oklahoma, and the California. Do I have any World of Warship players listening? Couldn't help myself, I'm an avid player of that game. Along with Pearl City, the harbor was home to 40,000 soldiers and sailors who were looking forward to a relaxing day from chores and their commanders. Many of these men were in their pajamas, robes, or kimonos, reading Sunday comics. Flying towards the harbor, Lieutenant Commander Shigeharu Murada ordered his torpedo men into attack formation at 7.51 a.m. After passing northwest of Iwa, they split in half, two groups of eight descending upon Pearl Harbor from the west and two groups of 12 coming from the southeast over Hickam. Pilot Zenji Abe remembered, A faint haze of kitchen smoke from houses preparing breakfast hung over the water. It was a peaceful scene. Fuchida was observing through his field glasses, and as the wave drew nearer, the crow's nest and tripod masts of the battleships Nevada, Arizona, Tennessee, West Virginia, Oklahoma, California, and Maryland appeared through the haze. Murata ordered his crews to drop their torpedoes at 7.57 a.m. against the battleships anchored east of Fort Island. The airmen descended to an attack altitude of 50 feet, risking their lives closing in on their targets. The dive bombers and torpedo planes flew so low, some could have crashed into the U.S. ship's superstructures. At 7.55 a.m., the Ford Island Navy Yard's signal tower atop the water tank raised a blue flag, meaning it was time to prepare, and the men assigned to each ship put on their morning colors and took their places. At 8 a.m., the national anthem was played, and even after a Japanese plane screamed above their heads to drop a torpedo, the USS Arizona and USS Nevada's brass band continued to play to the very last note of the Star-Spangled Banner. That torpedo missed, and the Japanese returned to strafe the band, tattering its flag, and allegedly a sailor on the Arizona watched the entire thing smiling and said to his friend, This is the best goddamn drill the Army Air Force has ever put on. Beside the USS Utah were a father and son fishing. They both saw a torpedo bomber come right overhead, drop a torpedo into the water, and it blew up a battleship, and not a single American had even fired back. 
The 12-year-old son, Thompson Izawa, remembers, My dad grabbed me by my earlobe and said, Get home, boy. We are in big trouble. Those are Japanese airplanes. All hell broke loose. Those inside ships were hit by torpedo explosions to the hulls, while those on the decks were set ablaze by machine gun fire. Tetsuya Atawa said of this, We were about to change an island of dreams into a living hell. The Utah was not a designated target, as it was pulled from the service and now used for target practice. But the excited young Japanese airmen torpedoed it nonetheless, most likely because the USS Enterprise was typically slated next to it. The Japanese information books stated as much that the USS Utah was usually right beside the USS Enterprise, and thus 27 torpedoes would be shot at the Utah in 4 minutes, and it listed 45 degrees in about 8 minutes, and then she turned turtle. 53 men trapped underneath or strafed by Japanese machine guns would die on the Utah. Takeo Yoshikawa was having breakfast when the first bombs fell. He and his fellow spies rushed to the consulate to destroy their codebooks and classify documents. Lieutenant Takashi Nagai released a torpedo at the mine layer, Oglala, as the crew watched it approaching, and they braced for their death. But the torpedo plummeted under Oglala by 15 feet, and it hit her neighbor, the cruiser Helena. Helena exploded on her starboard side, and a blast so strong, it blew out some of Oglala's plates. Oglala's Robert Hudson saw the Japanese plane's canopy open up, with the pilot hanging his head over the side to look at the crew, and he remembered... On his approach, we saw red flashes from his wings. I thought that this was a drill, and that the flashes were from a camera taking pictures of the harbor. When the bullets started ricocheting off the bulkhead, around us I knew the plane was not there to take our picture. The concussion from the blast on the Helena capsized the Gloss slowly, but none of her men were lost. Even after Helena was hit and lost half of her power, she was the first US ship to fire back at the Japanese. By 7.55 AM, .30 and .50 caliber machine guns on the USS Tautog and Helbert, moored at the island's submarine base, began firing at the Japanese. Tautog managed in three minutes to light ablaze one aircraft and downed possibly another. There were a lot of mistakes made in the defense of Pearl Harbor. A major one would be Husband Kimmel ordering that nearly every ship in the harbor to only have one boiler kept lit. This meant that a bomb strike in the right department would destroy the electrical power and in turn all the firepower of the ships. The thousands of man hours of drilling at sea, the war games, the task forces, and the assistance of the navy for bigger guns and bigger battleships, all of that meant absolutely nothing now. The most helpless of Pearl Harbor's ships were those in the dry docks. Not only could they not move, their power systems were all shut down, meaning nearly the whole of their defenses were completely out of commission. In dry dock number one lay the flagship 
Pennsylvania, and two destroyers, Cassin and Downs. Downs took three bombs to the aft, Cassin, two to her stern, and two to her superstructure. Pennsylvania's hull was collateral damage by the hits on the Cassin. Then, at 9.06 a.m., a bomb crashed through Pennsylvania's deck, killing 28 men. Medical corpsman Hank Lockenmayer recounted, A fire had broken out on the second deck and had to be attended to with haste. The fire was precipitated by the bursting of a 500-pound bomb in the casemate and the main deck. The havoc created by this one bomb hit can never be exaggerated. That one bomb hit pierced the boat deck abreast of the number 7 anti-aircraft gun and tore through the ninth casemate and down the main deck. All of this area exploded with vigor. The Marine Division suffered the severest losses. First Lieutenant Craig, standing near the three-inch gun, had both legs blown right off and received other injuries. He died almost on the spot. Dr. Raul, a lieutenant junior grade, and a pharmacist mate were mangled and killed instantly as well. There was no water pressure on the Pennsylvania to fight the fires erupting everywhere. Most of her anti-aircraft machine guns were blasting frantically. Over in the west dry dock was the destroyer Shaw, who was hit badly around 9.12 a.m. This had started a massive fire which spread towards the forward magazine. In 15 minutes, it made contact, unleashing a tremendous explosion with a huge ball of fire ballooning right into the air. Seeing this, both the Downs and the Cassin ordered their men to abandon ship. An officer phoned Admiral Husband Kimmel at his home with the news of the Japanese attacking the fleet. The Admiral was still buttoning his white uniform as he ran out of his house and onto the neighboring lawn of Captain John Early, which had a panoramic view of Battleship Row. Mrs. Early recounts seeing Kimmel there, and He stood there in utter disbelief and completely stunned. His face was as white as the uniform he wore. Husband Kimmel also recounted this moment. The sky was full of the enemy. I saw the Arizona lift out of the water, then sink back down, way down. Husband Kimmel rushed to his base and radioed the Pacific Fleet, stating, Hostilities with Japan have commenced with an air raid on Pearl Harbor. Patrol Wing 2, locate the enemy force. One officer who was there recounted, I ran over to my offices and I happened to be standing alongside the commander-in-chief himself, Admiral Kimmel. We were glumly watching the havoc and the carnage that was going on. And suddenly, he reached up and he tore off his four-star shoulder boards, which indicated his rank and title as Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet. He stepped into his adjacent offices and, realizing he was about to lose his command, donned on two-star Rear Admiral shoulder boards. It is alleged, famously might I add, that a ricochet bullet crashed right through the window into Husband Kimmel's chest and fell to the floor. He picked it up 
and he said to himself, I wish it had killed me. As he and his fellow airmen approached Battleship Row, pilot Takashi Maeda remembered, We saw the water channel, and we turned left. And right in front of us was Battleship Row. We aimed at the battleship. Our original order was to hit a California-class battleship, but at the time, we didn't know. We had hit the West Virginia. The raising of the colors had just finished for the West Virginia, and many of her crew thought they were watching an exercise by the Air Force. They rushed to see the dummy torpedoes being dropped. They watched the torpedoes approaching the ship, and as they hit and exploded, one crewman, named Fisk, said, After they dropped their torpedoes, they would have to climb to clear the superstructure of the battleship. One flew so close with his canopy open that we made eye contact, and I've dreamed about that son of a gun for more than 50 years. The West Virginia began to list, taking on a huge amount of water. Crews frantically began to seal compartments, trapping many inside with no air or lights. At that time in the U.S. Navy, African Americans were only allowed to serve in the kitchens. Mess attendant Doris Miller of West Virginia was gathering laundry when general quarters struck. He ran to his battle station, the midship anti-aircraft battery, to find it destroyed by torpedoes. Miller, accompanied by Victor Delano, proceeded to man number one and two Browning .50 caliber anti-aircraft guns at the conning tower. Miller was unfamiliar with the weapon, but recounted. It wasn't hard. I just pulled the trigger, and she worked fine. I had just watched the others with these guns. I guess I fired her for about 15 minutes. I think I got one of those Jap planes. They were diving pretty close to us. West Virginia was burning, spilling burning oil everywhere as she sank to the bottom with the port listing. Between five to eight 18-inch torpedoes detonated against West Virginia's port, while two armor-piercing bombs crashed through her deck. Of 1,541 men aboard her, 130 were killed, 52 wounded, three men were found dead later trapped in a sealed compartment, having died in the dark without food or water until December the 23rd, when the air simply ran out and they had all suffocated. Over on the USS Oklahoma, Quartermaster Herbert Kennedy recalled, I heard this noise, a popping noise, and I looked up, and there was a Japanese fighter plane coming in ahead of the torpedo planes, strafing the decks. The boy that was directly across from me, it just tore him in half. Blood splattered all over me, and I didn't know what to think. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Man your battle stations was screaming over the announcing system as the whole ship shuddered from the first torpedo hit on the port side. No one was able to man the anti-aircraft batteries since the boxes containing the ready ammunition were all padlocked. Men began to smash the padlocks frantically, but not a single shot would be fired from the batteries before the ship rolled over. As more torpedoes hit, the lines securing the Oklahoma to the Maryland began to pop as the Oklahoma listed. Lieutenant Jinichi Goto said of the Oklahoma hits, I was about 20 meters above the water when I released my torpedo. As my plane climbed up after the torpedo was off, 
I saw I was even lower than the crow's nest on the great battleship. My observer reported a huge waterspout springing up from the ship's location. Arari Meshita. It struck, he cried. The other two planes in my group also attacked the Oklahoma. Oklahoma had multiple hits on its port side, sending oil and water across the decks. Four men could man the guns. The abandoned ship order was given as the Oklahoma was rolling. The ship was listing at a 45 degree angle, then it took a massive missile strike right at the deck line. A fatal blow. The lights all blacked out, and the ship completed its roll. Five more torpedoes slammed into her, and her power system failed. Tanks exploded, streaming oil across the floors, and seawater poured in. In about eight minutes after the first assault of torpedo planes, the ship was overturned with her mast dug into the mud. In her roll, Oklahoma's ammunition handling rooms, around 1,400 pounds of 14-inch shells, went into a free fall, crushing to death several men and pinning others against bulkheads. Of her 1,353 crew, 461 were now trapped inside. As men tried desperately to help those trapped get out, Ray Turpin's worst memory of World War II occurred when he had to watch through a porthole as a compartment flooded with water and the man on the other side of that window, one chaplain, Lieutenant Father Aliosis Smith, refused his hand of help and said, Someone tried earlier to pull me out and I couldn't get through. I'm going to see if there are others needing a way out. Four weeks later, at a Protestant church in California, a Jewish sailor would testify that he was alive because a Catholic chaplain had pushed him through a porthole. Chaplain Lieutenant Father Aliosis Schmidt was the first American chaplain of any faith to die in World War II. Men swam from the Oklahoma to the Maryland desperately, but were soon ordered to get back into the water and to swim for Ford Island. One man who made it ashore, named George Smith, recounted, I couldn't stand looking over there, seeing my ship upside down. I cried that night. I kept saying to myself, what am I doing here? I could be home in Seattle, going to high school with my buddies. I just quit high school to join the Navy. For this? I was scared, but I knew I grew up that day. Later, cutting teams and drillers would try to break through parts of the ship where people were tapping on the hull from inside. They had tried to use torches, but the flames ignited the caulking sealant, suffocating the trapped men inside to death. The other issue, of course, was by using torches, they might ignite the great ship's fuel tanks. Men inside would bang on the walls with wrenches, using Morse code like SOS. Those lucky enough to get out of the coffin that was that ship would see bodies floating everywhere covered in oil. 429 of Oklahoma's officers and enlisted men were killed or missing. Through the brave efforts of rescue teams, around 32 men trapped inside were saved. Back in Washington, Navy Secretary Frank Knox in his office received the Air Raid Pearl Harbor This Is No Drill radiogram at around 1.30 p.m. Knox immediately called the White House, reaching Harry Hopkins, who upon hearing the news immediately proclaimed it had to be wrong. 
and that an attack must have been on Manila. When FDR was informed, he screamed, No! Secret Service agent Mike Riley recalls seeing FDR just after he got the news, thrusting forward in his wheelchair to the Oval Office, and in his words, He looked like a prize fighter. His chin stuck out about two feet in front of his knees, and he was the maddest Dutchman I or anybody ever saw. FDR then stated he thought the report was most likely true, and that it was just the kind of unexpected thing the Japanese would do, and that the very time they were discussing peace in the Pacific, they had been plotting to overthrow it. FDR called Cordell Hull at State, where the two Japanese ambassadors had missed their deadline of 1 p.m., and arrived in Hull's office at around 2.05 p.m. FDR suggested Hall make no mention of the attack, but to say, only greet them formally and coolly and bow them out. Just in case the cable about the air raid was wrong. Hull ushered them in at 2.20 p.m. Hall then began to read the extremely confusing 14-point document presented to him. His hands shook with rage at both Tokyo's duplicity and his own failures in reaching a diplomatic victory. And let's not forget, he had already read most of this document from the codebreakers prior. He finished scanning the pages and then turned to the ambassadors, announcing, I must say that in all my conversations with you, I have never uttered one word of untruth. This is born out of absolutely by the record. In all my 50 years of public service, I have never seen a document that was more crowded with infamous falsehoods and distortions on a scale so huge that I never imagined until today that any government on this planet was capable of uttering them. Nomura and Kuryusu bowed and left speechless and confused. As they got outside, reporters who had been waiting peppered them with questions. Before leaving the White House at 3 p.m., George Marshall cabled General Douglas MacArthur in Manila to warn him. Hostilities between Japan and the United States have commenced. Carry out tasks assigned in Rainbow Five. Back at Pearl Harbor, moored at berth 5-7 was Arizona, which was tied bow to stern on her port to the repair ship Vestal. Just as Genda had predicted, the U.S. ships, such as the Arizona, that were anchored inbound, had suffered little damage from his dive bombers and torpedo planes. Torpedoes had begun hitting Arizona since 7.55 a.m. Water began filling compartments, and the power went out in the ship. W.F. Green recalled, After the torpedo attacks, horizontal bombers in Vs of five planes came in from southward at 12 to 15,000 feet in close formation and unhindered except for anti-aircraft fire. Horizontal attacks were regularly spaced at rather long intervals, though I cannot be sure of the exact time, at about 10 to 15 minute intervals. Fuzio Fuchida was circling battleship row to make another bomb run when he recalled, We were about to begin our second bombing run when there was a colossal explosion in battleship row. A huge column of dark red smoke rose to 1,000 meters. It must have been the explosion of a ship's powder magazine. The shockwave was 
even felt in my plane, several miles away from the harbor. The Arizona's forward magazine had exploded. The entire forward part of the ship was enveloped in flames and smoke. Over a thousand American boys were incinerated, drowned, or eviscerated by shrapnel when a 500-foot high tower of flame erupted into the sky. The 32,600-ton battleship lifted out of the water, cracking her back and sank right back down. A sailor on the West Virginia saw the explosion and said of this moment, Ships on fire, ships burning, explosions going on all over the place. I saw the Arizona blow up. She just rained sailors. And of course, those were the ones that were fortunate enough to live. The ones that were blown off the ship. Crewmen of the Arizona ran across the burning ship to jump in the water to save their lives, only to find themselves jumping into six inches of a fiery pool of oil that was covering the sea. The burning oil smoke created an impenetrable black fog floating 10 feet over the surface. The U.S. Navy's final accounting suggests the USS Arizona was struck by eight bombs, its powder magazine and ammunition magazines, and her fuel tanks were all hit. Over 660,000 gallons of oil was sent into the water. The nearby USS Tennessee was more damaged by Arizona's debris than by the two hits she received from Japanese bombs. 1,177 sailors and marines died from the Arizona. One survivor of the Arizona would dive his dauntless against the Akagi six months later at the Battle of Midway. He would also be the one to deal the fatal blow to the Akagi, and as he watched it explode, he whispered, Arizona, I remember you. The repair ship Vestal tried to fire back with her three-inch machine guns when two bombs struck in or cutting her power and engulfing her soon in flames. Mitsuo Fuchida and his squadron of horizontal bombers were circling around as he did a damage report that would go on to Nagumo, Genda, and Yamamoto. He recalled, A warm feeling came from the realization that the reward of those efforts were unfolding before my very eyes. I counted four battleships definitely sunk, and three severely damaged, and extensive damage had been inflicted upon other types of ships. The seaplane base at Ford Island was all in flames, as were the airfields, especially at Wheeler Field. Fushida's squadron joined torpedo bombers in attacking the USS California, but Fuchida went after the USS Maryland. The USS California's bulkheads were so torn by the first two torpedoes that knifed through her port that rivets popped out and were ricocheting around the lower compartments. She was hit by two more torpedoes, followed by two high-level bombs. The California was taking on water, and oil was flooding her central station. Yet her crew was able to counter-flood her, equalize her weight, and saved her from Oklahoma's fate. The fires on California had to be fought with water taken from Fort Island's swimming pool, because as Arizona had sank, her body settled on the water main and broke it. 98 of California's crew died. Fuchida managed to drop some bombs. They were all converted 16-inch shells. He hit the forecastle of Maryland and killed some men. Commander W.F. Fitzgerald Jr. said falling shells had injured a few crew and one poor fellow had a whole 
right in his forehead where he had been hit. The USS Maryland, though, was quite fortunate and was not damaged that much. Dive bomber pilot Zenji Abe was searching for aircraft carriers while dodging increasing amounts of anti-aircraft fire. Seeing that there was no aircraft carriers in the harbor, he decided to attack a cruiser. He made his run and said of this event, I released my bomb, and at the same time, I pulled back on the stick. I almost blacked out for a moment, but I pulled out at about 50 meters to the sound of Saito's voice in my voice tube. My observer was excitedly calling out the results of our bombing. Formation leader short, second plane short, third plane hit. I was later able to identify our target as the Omaha-class light cruiser USS Rayleigh. The USS Rayleigh was holed up by a torpedo in her port side amid ship. The cruiser took such a list to the port that it appeared she might capsize. Her crew jettisoned topside weight to keep her upright and her valiant gunners managed to take down five Japanese aircraft. Several of her crew were wounded, but none were killed. The USS Tennessee was fighting back with real strength. One of her sailors, Millard McDonald, recalled, my thoughts were to make an act of defiance to show the enemy that, although we were badly battered, we were not defeated. We climbed as fast as we could, for the steel of the mast was hot from the nearby fires and beginning to burn our hands. We climbed through the thick smoke cloud, and Oscar then climbed to the yard in order to put the new hail yard through. The moment he signaled, everything was ready. I attached the nation's colors and I hoisted them along with the mast. At that very moment, we completed our task. General quarters were once again sounded. We turned to look at the sky, and I saw another wave of Japanese planes strafing his way to our position. Projectiles decimated Tennessee's number two turret, center gun killing four men. Moored beside the Tennessee was West Virginia, which was on fire and Arizona was 75 feet astern to Tennessee, which was sunk, on fire, spilling burning oil straight into the water. Tennessee's stern was also on fire, as Arizona's fiery oil was climbing towards it. Tennessee was hit by two bombs and would see five fatalities. On the USS Nevada, Joe Tasig remembered, I felt a very sharp blow on the bottom of my feet and very shortly after, I felt a blow on my hip, and I looked down, and my left foot was under my left arm. I was standing in a doorway, so I wasn't knocked down. I was hit by a missile, which passed completely through my thigh, and through the case of the ballistics computer of the director, which was directly in front of me. The USS Nevada was hit by a torpedo that ripped into her hull, and two bombs hit into her deck but her crew managed to get 6 out of 10 of her boilers going in 10 minutes, and she was sailing. To the amazement of American servicemen across the devastated Pearl Harbor, which looked like something out of Dante's Inferno, the Nevada passed across the burning Arizona, the sinking West Virginia, and the capsized Oklahoma. As the Nevada reached the channel, the second wave appeared overhead. Pilot Yonikichi Nakajima recalled. A battleship had survived and was navigating its way towards the mouth of Pearl Harbor. 
we all started to vomit. The Japanese pilots all knew if they could sink a capital ship in the channel, it would seal Pearl Harbor for months. This would be a tremendous and perhaps fatal blow against the American naval power in the Pacific. A squadron of dive bombers designated to hit the Helena noticed this opportunity and immediately set upon it. Aboard Nevada was Robert Thomas, who recalled, As we passed down the channel, I heard a shout, Dive bombers! Dive bombers! I looked up, and I saw them in an echelon formation beginning to peel off. And then, they came down. We were their targets. Through our firing, they came. The pilots and the other details clearly visible. Each carried a single bomb lodged between its fixed wheel landing gear. As each bomb was released, I could tell from the relative motion as to whether or not it would be a hit or a miss. The first two or three missed just starboard. The next bomber released his bomb and it just grew larger. I knew it was a hit. And I said to myself, mother, I am sorry. The USS Nevada was hit by a bomb to her starboard side, killing many men and tossing others overboard. Nevada began to list as orders to abandon ship were given. Artist Tear was firing a 5-inch gun when a bomb exploded in the casemate next to him, killing two men and knocking Tear unconscious and showering him with shrapnel. He was so wounded that men assumed he was dead and left him jumping overboard. He would later regain consciousness and continue firing. Robert Thomas was directing men on deck and he recalled, I ordered, take cover, and I turned my back before the bomb struck. I was engulfed in a storm of blast, fire, smoke, and debris. A moment later, I noticed that I was still standing. I looked around to see a large crater in the deck just a few feet away, and in the general vicinity, of a now empty main powder magazine. The bodies of my men were strewn all about. I spotted one of my shipmates lying near the edge, and he was on fire. I took steps towards him and collapsed. That's when I realized that my leg was broken. My right wrist and hand were shot through as well, rendered useless. I then noticed blood spurting from my arms and legs, and I couldn't stop the bleeding. That worried me more than the rest of my physical condition. I crawled over to the edge of the crater and realized that I wasn't even able to pull a man to safety. It began a nightmare as I yelled at the top of my lungs to several sailors just a few yards from me to the deck below. Despite their proximity, they couldn't hear me due to the deafening roar of battle. Robert Thomas would receive the Legion of Valor, the Purple Heart, and the Navy Cross. USS Nevada began to sink to her bow, but her commander managed to steer her to the floating dry dock off Hospital Point, where she was grounded. The Japanese dream of sealing the channel was lost. Now while Armageddon was hitting Pearl Harbor, many of her destroyers avoided the torpedoes, bombs, and fires to sortie from Pearl Harbor. The St. Louis, Blue, Phelps, and Lawson got out and were ordered to group up with Halsey's Task Force 2. From that point, they were ordered to sail from Barber's Point and attack the Japanese 1st Air Fleet. The officers on these destroyers knew 
they were confronting a much larger foe and decided their course of action would be to speed up to the location, fire torpedoes from port, lay down a smoke screen, and make a 180 while firing more torpedoes on their starboard side. It was the best they could hope to do, and not a single officer believed it would work. They all assumed they were going to die. Fortunately, or unfortunately, they would not find their foe. Meanwhile, Halsey's task force scrambled its scouting squadrons, hunting down the enemy. Some of these scouts ended up reporting that they had spotted the enemy, but it was just the U.S. destroyers trying to group up with them. Back at Admiral Nagumo's first air fleet, 200 miles north of Oahu, there remained radio silence. The crew was in a whirlpool of excitement as the battle results began to pour in. At 9 a.m., the first raiders began to appear through the clouds. Iki Kuramoti recalled, Within an hour, all the planes were brought aboard. We had lost only 29 planes. It was an incredibly small number when compared with our glorious battle results. Nevertheless, when their heroic end was announced, the hearts of the crew were filled with sorrow for those men and or the fate of our special submarines. Commander Mitsuo Fuchida was one of the last to return as he had stayed behind circling over the skies of Oahu to ensure the safe return of many of his airmen as possible. When he returned to the Akagi, he immediately went to the bridge to receive a cup of tea and a slice of bread as he reported to Rensuke Kusaka Minori Genda and Choichi Nagumo. Four battleships sunk. I know this from my own personal observation. Nagumo said, Four battleships sunk. Good. What about the other four? Fuchida unrolled his chart of Pearl Harbor prepared for him by Yoshikawa's reports and said, There hasn't been time to check results precisely, but it looks like three were seriously damaged and the other somewhat damaged, although not quite so badly. Nagumo replied, Do you think that the U.S. fleet will be able to operate out of Pearl Harbor within six months? That was the whole point of the mission, after all, to give the Japanese enough time to conquer and occupy the resource-rich territories in the Asia-Pacific. The main force will not be able to come out within six months. A lot of light cruisers and other vessels remain in the harbor. It would be worthwhile to launch another attack. Kusaka responded, What do you think the next targets should be? The dockyards? The fuel tanks? and the occasional ship? Kusaka began to question the threat of American counterstrikes on their fleet. Both Genda and Fuchida insisted the Japanese held air dominance between the fleet and Hawaii. Then Fuchida said, I believe we have destroyed many enemy planes, but I do not know whether we have destroyed them all. The enemy could still attack the fleet. Nagumo replied, where do you think the missing U.S. carriers are? Fujita was not sure, and everyone assumed the U.S. carriers knew about the attack by now and were hunting them down. So, Genda proclaimed, Let the enemy come. If he does, we will shoot his planes down. Stay in the area for several days and run down all the enemy carriers. For those of you who know this story, this is where a major misstep occurs. Nagumo, Genda, and Kuzaka began to discuss the possibility of sending in a third wave. 
yet they did not know where the U.S. carriers were. Nagumo pointed out the planes for a third strike had already been armed to defend against an American counterattack. The weather was turning against them, making both launching and recovering much more difficult. The refueling tankers were waiting for them due north, and in a battle, might the entire 1st Air Fleet run out of fuel? Despite the enormous success of Operation Z, many pilots returned had seen their fellow airmen shot down, and many themselves came back with aircraft riddled with holes. On Akagi's bridge, Nagumo made his decision, finally. We may conclude that anticipated results have been achieved. Preparation for an attack cancelled. Nagumo's decision not to launch a third wave has gone down in history as one of the largest failures of the Pacific War. By the end of 1942, Admiral Yamamoto was quoted to say, Events have shown that it was a great mistake not to have launched another attack against Pearl Harbor. Yet, in a lot of ways, Nagumo was right. A third strike was excessively risky. The Americans were awake and looking to kill. They could have plausibly found the first air fleet. Yet despite all of the success of the two waves that hit Pearl Harbor, they had failed to hit Pearl Harbor's 4.5 million barrels of petroleum. Admiral Husband Kimmel said of this, If they had destroyed the oil, which was above ground all at the time, and which could have been destroyed, it would have forced the withdrawal of the fleet to the coast because there was no oil anywhere else that could have kept the fleet operating. Regardless, Operation Z in 30 minutes had taken out 8 of the U.S. Pacific Fleet's battleships and in another 20 minutes over two-thirds of the U.S. military's air power in Hawaii. Over 180 planes were left in ruins. After 90 minutes, 2,008 sailors were dead. 710 wounded, 218 soldiers and airmen were dead, with 364 wounded, 109 marines were dead, with 69 wounded, and 68 civilians were dead, with 35 wounded. In total, 2,403 Americans were killed, and 1,143 were wounded. 18 ships were sunk or run aground. Of the deaths, Nearly half were due to the explosion of Arizona's forward magazine after it was hit by a modified 16-inch shell. After the attack, the FBI were set loose to capture enemy operators in Hawaii. Policemen raided the Japanese embassy on Nanu Avenue to find the staff burning papers. The following day, 482 German, Japanese, and Italian suspects were in custody at the detention camp on Sand Island. The spy, Takio Yoshikawa, insisted under oath that his various outings were merely those of a tourist. In August of 1942, there was one of 33 prisoner exchanges between Rome, Tokyo, and Washington. Yoshikawa returned to Japan aboard the Swedish ship Gripsholm, where he continued to work for naval intelligence. Later in life, when he retired and asked for a pension, he was told, you must be one kind of a child to think that we will ever acknowledge your activities in Honolulu. The government of Japan never spied on anyone. Yoshikawa would later tell himself, In truth, if only for a moment in time, I held history 
in the palm of my hand. Back in Britain, Sir Winston Churchill was dining at Chequers, the country retreat of prime ministers. He had guests, such as U.S. Ambassador Gil Winant and Ariel Harriman, the special envoy of FDR to Europe. A butler brought in a portable radio for the party to listen to the BBC Home Service. When the attack was announced, Sir Winston Churchill leapt to his feet and said, We must declare war on Japan. He then telephoned FDR and said, Mr. President, what's this about Japan? FDR said back, It's quite true. They have attacked us at Pearl Harbor. We are all in the same boat now. In Churchill's memoirs of this moment, he wrote, To have the United States on our side was to me the greatest joy. I do not pretend to have measured accurately the martial might of Japan. But at this very moment, I knew the United States was in the war, up to the neck and into the death. So we had won after all. Hitler's fate was sealed. Mussolini's fate was sealed. As for the Japanese, they would be ground to powder, being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. In Germany, Adolf Hitler thought the attack meant the United States would turn its back on Europe to fight in Asia and announced, The turning point! We can't lose the war at all! We now have an ally which has never been conquered in 3,000 years! In Italy, Mussolini proclaimed, it will be easy to win a war against a country of Negroes and Jews. Never in history has a people been ruled by a paralytic. There have been half-kings, fat kings, handsome kings, and even stupid ones, but never a king who, when he wants to go to the toilet or to dinner, must be assisted by another man. A rather colorful quote by Mussolini referring to FDR. In Japan, as told to us, through the diaries of Privy Seal Kido and Emperor Hirohito's naval aide, Joe, we get to follow the Emperor hour to hour on the first day of the war, according to Joe. As the forces headed for Malaya, started to land at Singora at 1.30 a.m. and completed the landing at 4.30 a.m., at 2.30 a.m., the Foreign Minister Togo presented the Emperor with a message from President Roosevelt. This seemed to have annoyed him. For those of you who might be a bit confused, this is local Japanese time, by the way. At 4 a.m., Japan issued a final ultimatum to the United States. At 3.30 a.m., the Hawaiian surprise attack was successful. At 5.30 a.m., Singapore was bombed with great results. Air attacks on Davao, Guam, Wake. At 7.10 a.m., all of the above were reported to the Emperor. The American gunboat Wake was captured on the Shanghai front. The British gunboat Petrol was sunk. From 7.15 to 7.30 a.m., the Prime Minister informally reported to the Emperor on the Imperial Rescript declaring war. At 7.35 a.m., the Chief of the Army General Staff reported on the war situation. At 10.45 a.m., the Emperor attended an emergency meeting at the Privy Council. 
At 11 a.m., the imperial rescript declaring war was promulgated. At 11.40 a.m., Hirohito conferred with Kido for about 20 minutes. At 2 p.m., the emperor summoned the army and naval ministers and bestowed an imperial rescript on them. The army minister, representing both services, replied to the emperor. At 3.05 p.m., the emperor had a second meeting with Kido, lasting for about 20 minutes. At 4.30 p.m., the chiefs of staff formally reported on the draft of the tripartite military pact. At 8.30 p.m., the chief of the Navy general staff reported on the achievements of the Hawaii air attack. Throughout the day, the emperor wore his naval uniform and seemed to be in a splendid mood. Eight hours after Fuchida broadcast Tora Tora Tora, Premier Tojo read the imperial rescript. We, by the grace of heaven, Emperor of Japan, hereby declare war on the United States of America and the British Empire. The men and officers of our army and navy shall do their utmost in prosecuting the war. The entire nation, with a united will, shall mobilize their total strength so that nothing will miscarry in the attainment of our war aims. It has been truly unavoidable and far from our wishes that our empire had now been brought to cross swords with America and Britain. These two powers, inducing other countries to follow suit, increased military preparations on all sides of our empire to challenge us. They have obstructed by every means our peaceful commerce and finally resorted to a direct severance of our economic relations, menacing gravely the existence of our empire. They have intensified economic and military pressure to compel thereby our empire into submission. This trend of affairs would, if left unchecked, not only nullify our empire's efforts of many years for the sake of stabilization of East Asia, but also endanger the very existence of our nation. Our empire, for its existence and self-defense, has no other recourse but to appeal to arms and to crush every obstacle in its path. The citizens of Japan then heard the strains of the song Umi Yukaba, which included the chorus, Across the sea, corpses in the water. Across the mountain, corpses heaped upon the field. I shall die only for the emperor. I shall never look back. The following day, FDR would start one of his most famous speeches with... Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. He would end that speech with... I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, 
a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. The war had begun. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if you are still hungry after all that for some more history content, why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War Channel at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. I really do hope you enjoyed the episode. I did my best to try and give a real flavor by showing the accounts of so many people that were on those ships, their stories. And now, the attack on Pearl Harbor sent shockwaves throughout the globe. Do not forget, this was but one part of the Japanese war plan. Japan would be simultaneously invading Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Join us next time for the invasion of Malaya.